Welcome to Vaginas, Vulvas, and Vibrators with Jordan Donnell. This is a safe place to learn about women's health and sexual wellness. I'm your host, Jordan Donnell, physician assistant, women's sexual health educator, and intimacy coach. On today's episode, we have a special guest joining us to talk more about labia, labiaplasties, and the clitoris. I am so excited to have this special guest share with us her story of a labiaplasty gone wrong at the age of 17. She has used this to ensure that residents, medical professionals, in particular OB-GYNs and plastic surgeons are getting good, adequate education about the clitoris and labia in medical literature to help prevent this from happening for other women. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to tell you about Manifest Your Man. This is a six-week program to reclaim your confidence to attract the man you deserve and have been dreaming about. I am so excited for this upcoming program. In this program, we are going to cover everything from health, pleasure, communication, desires, and really getting clear on what you're looking for in a partner. This program is great for doing the work to get ready for your next relationship. To find out more information about this, go to manifest.jordandonnell.com. I am so excited for all of the women who decide to take this step to reclaiming their confidence and attracting the man they want. Joining me today is Jessica Penn. She is a wonderful woman that I have met on Instagram who had a labiaplasty at the age of 17. When she had her labiaplasty, her surgery went wrong. In today's episode, she is telling us all about that and talking a little bit more about labia and how all labia are wonderful and beautiful and how to prevent that from happening for future generations, really focusing on educating medical providers so that this doesn't happen to anybody else. Jessica, would you like to go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so I'm basically an activist for a better inclusion of clitoral anatomy in medical literature and curricula. I also advocate for there to be better training standards for labiaplasty and also for doctors to not spread misinformation about vulvas, which is a problem. It's a problem that's hard to believe, but there's a lot of misinformation about labia minora that is leading to stigma and is being used to market labiaplasty. Absolutely. So what is a labiaplasty since you brought that up? A labiaplasty is a cosmetic surgery to reduce the size of the labia minora. The labia minora are basically the vaginal lips. They're the lip, the inner lips of the vulva. And what are some of like the misconceptions that you've seen that gynecologists or doctors are telling their patients about labia? So both plastic surgeons and OBGYNs do labiaplasties. And some of them will claim that large labia minora are caused by sexual activity, masturbation, excess androgens, which are basically male hormones, and none of that is true or supported by any evidence. They also say that large labia minora are caused by aging, and that's also not supported by evidence, yet you will quite frequently see these surgeries promoted as quote-unquote rejuvenation. I just recently got the American Society of Plastic Surgeons to stop calling labiaplasty rejuvenation on their website. 
So I see that as a pretty big win just because I think that, you know, it leads a lot of young women to think that they look old when, so 10 normative studies have been done and no positive correlation has been found between labia minora size and age. It has been found that they shrink with menopause and they also get much bigger in puberty. There was one study that indicated they get bigger by about three times during puberty. And so I think that that's what's happening with a lot of women. I think, you know, nobody tells girls that their vulvas are going to change and then they end up with larger labia minora and they think, oh no, what's this? Am I normal? And then there are doctors who will exploit that. That's my opinion. So I was only 17 when I got on the internet just to learn about my vulva. I didn't know where my clitoris was, so I got online to find out. (laughs) And that's when I learned the term vulva, which I had never been taught. And I was on the Wikipedia page for vulva, and I saw labia minora, and I was like, oh, what are those? (laughs) Okay. And uh, like I had no idea what they were called. I had only been taught vagina. And... So I looked at the vulva on the Wikipedia page and I was confused because that's not what mine looked like. And so then, you know, I started Googling about whether I was normal and I searched for photos of labia minora and labioplasty surgeons' websites came up and before and after labioplasty photos came up and they led me to believe I had a terrible and embarrassing problem that needed to be fixed even though I now think, you know, I was totally within the normal range and there was nothing especially unusual about my anatomy. So interestingly enough, your dad is a plastic surgeon. So tell me like what that was kind of like when you decided you wanted to have a labiaplasty. Well, first I went to my mom and I said I was worried that I was ugly. And she said, That was such a ridiculous thing to worry about and that they were supposed to be ugly. So that that was not particularly helpful for me as a vain 17-year-old who thought that every part of my body had to be beautiful and perfect. (laughs) You know, I was sort of a little bit of a perfectionist. I was kind of type A. So I didn't want to have any part of me be ugly. And so I thought, gosh, my mom doesn't know what she's talking about. And she did take me to her OBGYN. And her OBGYN told me I was normal. But the problem was, I had read a recommendation that doctors tell all patients that they're normal, regardless of how unusual they are. And when I asked her how I compared to other women, she wouldn't tell me. You know, so I asked her what percentile my labia minora were in, and she wouldn't tell me. And it's kind of hard because back then there was no modern data on that. And I asked her how I compared to the last 10 patients that she had seen. And she wouldn't tell me that either. So I felt like she was withholding information from me. What I now realize is she probably just wasn't paying attention. I think a lot of the times OBGYNs just don't pay any attention to the vulva. There was one article that said that OBGYNs treat the vulva like a small Midwestern town that you just pass through without really noticing. And so I think, you know, that says a lot about what goes on and why it was so hard for me to get information about whether I was normal. Now there's a lot more information out there. There have been 10 normative studies of labia minora size that have reported average labia minora length as anywhere between 1.4 and 2.2 
centimeters. And there's also the Gynodiversity Project, which I think is the best resource. What's frustrating to me is the author said she can't get it published anywhere, but it's like the most comprehensive source of information on different aspects of vulvas, like the range of pigmentation and just like, you know, she just really breaks it down. I think it's just one woman who collected hundreds of photographs from women. I'm not sure, but it's, I love it. It's the best resource, I think. But yeah, so back when I was 17, so after going to my mom's OBGYN, I was still not reassured. And I felt like she was hiding information from me. You know, I kind of got the impression that she thought it was so abnormal that she wouldn't even tell me how abnormal I was. And because why not just tell me how I compared to her last 10 patients? Like, why would she refuse to do that? So I went home and I went to my dad and I told my dad that my labia minora hurt when I rode my bike. And that was a lie, which later made it much harder for me to stand up for myself because I blame myself. And it's also made it harder for me to tell my story because other people will blame me because of that small lie that I told. Now, my attitude is even if someone does have pain riding their bikes, there are a lot of solutions to explore before surgery. You know, same with like tight pants. Like you can try some different pants or like try some different underwear. If that's the issue. There are different bike seats out there, but none of that was suggested. After I told my dad, I think one problem is bullets just make people uncomfortable. So I kind of gave him the impression there was something wrong. And he was just like, oh gosh, I don't know what to do about this. But he went and he talked to his colleagues at the hospital and he was told, this is no big deal. People do it all the time. And so he was like, oh, it turns out this is no big deal. People do it all the time. So then he just asked around for the best OBGYN surgeon. And the reason he picked an OBGYN is because he knew that plastic surgeons didn't get educated about vulvas and weren't trained to do labioplasties. And he talked to his plastic surgeon colleagues at the time who were doing labioplasties, and he didn't think they knew what they were doing. So he didn't trust them which I think says a lot about how this started. You know, a lot of surgeons started doing these surgeries because they just approached the labia minora as extra skin. No one was trained. They didn't typically, you know, you have to realize that anatomy education has where vulvas are concerned has not been good at all. You know, so even my dad just thought the labia minora were extra skin. He didn't think there were any significant risks involved, or he wouldn't have let me do it, you know, and he chose an OBGYN who was recommended as the top OBGYN surgeon at Baylor Hospital in Dallas. And he has since been president of the Texas Medical Association, president of the Dallas County Medical Society. And he also got some big award where a doctor said he was a doctor's doctor. So he is the doctor that other doctors trust to operate on their families. And even despite what he did to me, he somehow maintains that status, which is bizarre. Though hopefully that's changing because my dad actually wrote an article in the hospital's magazine or they have like a journal for the hospital. And he wrote what happened to me in the journal. And he didn't name his name, but... It upset him enough that he like called my dad's office and threatened to sue him. And he thinks that if 
he thinks other doctors who read the article will know that it was him. So that was kind of ballsy of my dad to do, and I appreciate it. But, but basically, the fact that my father was a plastic surgeon did not protect me from a bad result at all. And I think it says a lot that a plastic surgeon could not choose a safe surgeon for their daughter. And what that's indicative of is a real systemic problem where there is a lack of training standards and where even a plastic surgeon didn't know enough what was going on. Like, if a plastic surgeon couldn't choose a safe surgeon, why do we think plastic surgeons are all qualified to do these surgeries? You know, because the truth is, my dad could have gotten privileges to do a labiaplasty pretty much anywhere. He could have done my labiaplasty. I mean, that would have been unethical because I'm a family member, but he could have gotten permission to do it at a surgery center. He's considered qualified to do it. And yeah, so basically neither OBGYNs nor plastic surgeons are typically trained to do labiaplasty in residency. They're not typically taught adequate vulvar anatomy, and yet they're all considered qualified to do these surgeries. And that's the biggest problem. My OBGYN had only done two labiaplasties before me. And that's one thing that I've been frustrated with my dad for not asking about, you know, because it's definitely safer if you go to someone who's done a bunch of them before. However, I've heard from women who have been harmed by surgeons who allegedly had operated on hundreds of women before them. And also what's interesting is the two women before me that my doctor had operated on were also doctors' family members. So I think, you know, it says a lot that doctors are choosing, had been choosing him to do this. Basically, he completely amputated my labia minora and performed a clitoral hood reduction without my consent. And in the clitoral hood reduction, he severed the dorsal nerves of my clitoris. So one of the biggest problems with these surgeries is doctors will operate on the clitoral hood without realizing where the dorsal nerves of the clitoris are. The dorsal nerves of the clitoris are basically right under the skin of the clitoral hood. Yet, a lot of the times in anatomy textbook diagrams and OBGYN textbook diagrams, they will show the nerves terminating, or they will show them basically arborizing prior to entering the clitoris. So they just assume that they like disperse instead, and instead, like giant nerves travel right under the skin. And the way it works is, you know, each of those giant nerves contains thousands of nerve fibers that end in nerve endings in the, well, primarily in the glands, right? That's the most sensitive part of the clitoris. And if you sever those nerves, it cuts off all the signals to your brain and your brain sees that as amputation. So yeah, and that's not something that like regenerates, you know, (laughs) like that's something that people tend to think, but if you cut a major nerve like that, it doesn't regenerate. Yeah, so the other thing is those nerves are big enough to repair. So one tragedy is when they don't even acknowledge where they are or that they're getting injured, patients may miss the opportunity for repair because in my case, I was told it was all in my head and that's been the same for other women I've heard from. It's hard though because I don't want to recommend so basically, basically dorsal nerve repairs are done with penises and the dorsal nerves in the clitoris are just as large. So you should be able to repair those as well. But I don't know of any instances of them getting repaired. And it's hard because 
basically, you know, I've talked to some doctors who specialize in peripheral nerve repairs. And especially like I talked to a couple of gender reassignment surgeons, and they tend to know the most about this kind of thing. And they said, yeah, it's theoretically possible, but it needs to be done like within a certain amount of time. So it's too late for me. But I have tried to suggest it to other women who have lost sensation. But yeah, that's yet another reason why it's important to know that anatomy. But yeah, so basically, one thing that I've done is I've gotten the course of the nerves in the clitoris into OBGYN literature. Before 2019, it really was not in any OBGYN textbooks or journals. There were a couple, there were a couple exceptions that were not really even correct and were very recent, like as of 2016. But for the most part, it was just completely missing. So I got, I've gotten three major OBGYN textbooks updated with better illustrations and better descriptions of clitoral anatomy. And hopefully there will be more. I also got some OBGYNs to publish a study of the dorsal nerves of the clitoris. And that study is now required reading for all urogynecologists. It's as part of their maintenance of certification. It's still only optional reading for OBGYNs, which is frustrating because basically the American Board of OBGYN has made a deliberate choice to not make it required learning for all OBGYNs, even though they have the power to make it required learning. But they think that this is only, that this can just be self-directed learning based on, you know, whether or not people think it's important, which is nuts. Because of course, they were all required to learn detailed anatomy of the penis in medical school. So one thing really frustrating is penile anatomy is considered general anatomy that everyone has to learn. And clitoral anatomy is considered highly specialized anatomy that not everyone has to learn and that just isn't that important. And yeah, like, and it's not a matter of what, what is known. It's a matter of what gets taught. And I think there's been a lot of miscommunication there. There's been a lot of news about like, oh, like parts of the clitoris were only recently discovered. And that's fake news. Like one of the most popular anatomy atlases is Netter's Atlas of Anatomy. Clitoral anatomy is incorrect in that atlas. However, he at least tried to draw the course of the dorsal nerves on the clitoris. He just drew it wrong. But he died in 1991. So his illustrations are pretty old. And they showed more detail than the vast majority of OBGYN literature had until 2019. There was only one textbook, Williams Gynecology, that kind of showed, but they didn't describe them. And they have since updated their textbooks. And now it's much better. But basically, like my point is, this anatomy has been known. And even just like even just on Saturday, I attended this clitoris summit and they were acting like, you know, people just discovered the bulbs and cura of the clitoris. And I find that ridiculous because my father's medical textbook. But yeah, so my father's anatomy textbook from medical school, which was published in 1981, shows the bulbs and cura of the clitoris. So they've been there. The information has been out there. And as for the course of the dorsal nerves, that information has been out there since 1844. 
So I tend to think that the way that this anatomy doesn't does not get included and does not get taught is a matter of what's considered important. And I think that there is almost willful ignorance. It's like willful blindness because it makes people uncomfortable because of the taboo. And like, I think that people underestimate how often, I think people really underestimate how often these omissions are intentional and how, for me, in trying to convince authors and editors to include the anatomy, it's like, I actually have to make arguments with them, you know, because they'll be like, oh, it doesn't belong in this textbook because this is just a general, general anatomy textbook. And it's like, what? No, it should be in there like all other major anatomy is. Or like one OBGYN said, it doesn't belong in this textbook because this is just a general OBGYN textbook used in medical school. I mean, it's just people come up with excuses for like why it doesn't need to be here, doesn't need to be here. And then in the end, it's not really anywhere. The other thing is people will like, let's say like for... As an example, the chief editor of Gray's Surgical Anatomy, Peter Brennan, deliberately left it out of his textbook, despite me requesting he include it back in 2018. It just came out a few months ago. And sure enough, there was no detail provided for the clitoris, the innervation of the clitoris. 33 words describe the clitoris, 1,680 describe the penis. That is not equitable on any planet. But he defended that because he considers penile anatomy important for general surgery, but clitoral anatomy isn't. And he even said, well, gynecological anatomy isn't traditionally included in general surgery textbooks. And I'm like, what kind of crazy shit is this? Like, last I checked, general surgeons operate on both men and women. (laughs) So I actually counted how much anatomy, I'm sorry, I counted how many words cover male reproductive anatomy versus female reproductive anatomy in that textbook. What's funny is there's a chapter on male reproductive anatomy, and there's a chapter on female reproductive anatomy, and then there's a chapter just on the prostate. And I I have a hard time understanding that allocation of, you know, information. But basically, in total, there's over twice as many words describing male reproductive anatomy, which is nuts to me because female reproductive anatomy is more complicated. And yet there was the same problem with reproductive anatomy posters. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen the reproductive anatomy posters that get put on walls at the doctor's office. So some of them are made by Walters Kluwer. And the Walters Kluwer ones have over twice as many labels for male reproductive anatomy as female reproductive anatomy. And I'm pretty sure the others are just as bad. I just haven't gone after the others. But basically, I got Walters Kluwer to agree to update their anatomy posters. So that should be a pretty awesome change when those come out, because it means that what doctors see in their offices and what patients see is going to be much more equitable. So some people have questioned that. They're like, who cares what's on the posters? Like doctors don't learn what's on the posters. But I think actually, if you get anatomy that the doctors never learned, put on the posters in their offices, they will pay attention. They'll be like, oh, wait, what's that over there? And, and if it's like official, and it's they're the anatomy posters by Walters Kluwer, they're going to pay attention. They're going to be like, oh, 
this is at least my hypothesis. Maybe we'll just ignore it. I think you're totally right. And what's interesting about your story is that when I was a student, a PA student, I was with a gynecologist and OB-GYN and got to see a labiaplasty done. She had done one. And I remember like this experience, the, the particular patient had, was pregnant and had some significant swelling resulted in changes in her anatomy and it was now causing her pain with sex. So they went for a labiaplasty. And I remember thinking to myself, like this area bleeds so much. Like there was so much blood compared to a lot of the other procedures I had been in. And it just blew my mind how I personally felt like that should have been done by a plastic surgeon and not an OB-GYN. So I find that so interesting that your dad, who's a plastic surgeon, felt that an OB-GYN is actually a better place. But we didn't learn any of this stuff in school and it's not talked about. And I'm so glad that you're doing the work that you do to get this information out there. Yeah. I mean, now I would say that a plastic surgeon is safer than an OBGYN, but I would also now say that a urogynecologist is the safest because that's the only specialty required to learn clitoral anatomy. And most people will say, well, the clitoris isn't involved in a labiaplasty, but actually a lot of the times these surgeons do clitoral hood reductions as well. Sometimes they're done without consent. Mine was done without my consent. And you'd be surprised how many other women I've heard from who have also had clitoral hood reductions done without their consent. And it's really crazy. And I think this happens because of confusion over what the clitoral hood even is. So I did my anatomic study of the clitoris with my dad and plastic surgery residents at UT Southwestern. And we had written up our plan for how we would do our study. And one of the measurements we were going to take was the length of the clitoral hood. And I showed up late on the first day, which was a mistake. I should have gotten there on time, but I missed the first dissection. Yeah, I basically missed the first one. And I showed up and I was like, wait, what? Like, they weren't measuring the length of the clitoral hood. They were measuring only the free end of the clitoral hood, like only the part that covers the glands. But when they do clitoral hood reductions, they operate on the more proximal part or the more like anterior part that covers the clitoral body. And that's where there's a risk of dorsal nerve injury because the dorsal nerves are right under the skin of the clitoral hood, you know, because they travel dorsally on the clitoral body. And it's crazy how many surgeons are just blatantly ignorant about this. Like you can find plastic surgeons and OBGYNs describing this anatomy incorrectly on real self. Like there was one OBGYN who said, basically he said loss of clitoral sensation is extremely unlikely because the dorsal nerves are nowhere near clitoral hood tissue. And that's just blatantly wrong. Like this guy has never paid any attention or he would know better than that. And there are several doctors just publicly saying these things, you know, they'll say them on their websites, on real self. And it, it's crazy because it's like, aren't they embarrassed? And the thing that bothers me is other doctors don't say anything to them. Like, I think doctors get really scared to criticize other doctors, which is something about medical culture that I really don't like. Like they care 
more about respecting other doctors' reputations than they do about respecting patients' rights to not be mutilated. You know, like they're more concerned with not rocking the boat and not being seen criticizing than they are with the fact that preventable harm is happening. That's something that's bothered me a lot. And it's really hard because if I talk about this, then they all feel criticized and they're like, how dare you say we don't care? But I'm like, but this is happening, you know, and it's been frustrating for me because so I advocate as much as I can. And I am always like struggling to figure out how to get doctors to help advocate as well. And it's always hard because like, I know that being critical doesn't really work. Like I have to find ways to motivate them without criticizing them. But then it's so frustrating because in my opinion, doctors who operate on patients blind should be criticized. And in my opinion, doctors who don't don't follow their AMA's code of medical ethics should also maybe be criticized. Like there is an ethical obligation to speak up when your colleagues are being irresponsible and harmful. That blows my mind. I just don't understand how or why a lot of these people don't feel that providers in general really need to be informed on this or people who are performing these procedures. But it's bigger than that when you have like patients that you're treating and taking care of, like they need to know how their body works. And if the doctors don't know, how can they educate their patients? So that just blows my mind. Yeah, I think it all comes down to how the clitoris plays no direct role in reproduction. And so it's not considered particularly medically important. But so many patients that I see have a ton of issues with the clitoris and like their sexual health. And it does make a huge difference being able to talk about it and know about it to help women learn about their bodies and feel more comfortable in their bodies and what their body is doing. So one thing that I've said is the clitoris is the only organ for which anatomy is considered irrelevant to its function. So like in literature on female sexual function and dysfunction, it's very typical for them to not discuss anatomy and physiology of the clitoris. There will be a lot of focus on relationships and lifestyle factors and body image, but not on the clitoris. In one in the article on up-to-date on diagnosis and management of female sexual dysfunction, relationship gets mentioned 26 times and they say clitoris only one time. And all they say is you can put massage oil on the clitoris. In one urogynecology textbook, they have an entire textbook chapter on female sexual function and dysfunction, which is amazing because it's like a very long in-depth chapter on female sexual function and dysfunction. So it's not like these authors think it's unimportant. They're, They're considering it important. They're just not considering the clitoris important to that, right? So in that same textbook, anatomy of the clitoris is omitted. There's, I mean, they really don't describe the clitoris at all. There's no, like, they don't show nerves going into the clitoris. And I don't even think they have an illustration of just like the basic shape of the clitoris, like in that model you just showed me. Like there's really nothing. And in the textbook chapter on female sexual function and dysfunction, They mention the clitoris only once, and all they say is it engorges. So it's basically typically not considered 
that a woman could have a problem with her clitoris causing her sexual dysfunction. It's typically assumed to be about hormones or some psychological issue. And so that's why, you know, when I complain about issues after my surgery, I was told I just needed to relax, that I should see a sex therapist, or that I just needed to fall in love. And no one ever stopped and thought about how maybe my clitoris had been damaged. I had to figure that out myself. And I had to basically prove that it was possible because I was told that it wasn't. You know, and I think probably most patients who get told that it's not possible probably feel confused. And yeah, I don't know, just totally invalidated. I know it was really traumatic for me to get told that it was all in my head. The reason I taught myself the anatomy was because I needed to be able to prove that it wasn't all in my head. I needed to be able to explain like, yes, this is possible. Look, this is where the nerves are. And definitely dissecting the anatomy myself helped with that even more because it made it all the more obvious. But yeah, it's so I even had one OBGYN say that clitoral anatomy wasn't relevant to treating female sexual dysfunction because female sexual dysfunction is caused by low libido. I had another OBGYN say women do not have problems with their clitorises. So it's just bizarre because if you look at literature on male sexual dysfunction, it's all about you know how the penis works and what could be wrong with the penis. But if you look at literature on female sexual function dysfunction, it's more about like what could be wrong with our brains or like like I said before, body image, hormone. And this is reflected in how the quote unquote female Viagra is a drug that acts on women's brains, not genitals. And also the the main instrument that they use to evaluate female sexual function is the female sexual function index. And it is very based on psychology instead of physiology. It's like, how satisfied are you with this? It's more an assessment of women's feelings about their sexual function. And the way it's designed, you could score poorly on it simply if you have a misunderstanding about how your sexual function is supposed to work. For example, a lot of women feel like they're supposed to be having vaginal orgasms, even though the vast majority of women cannot orgasm from vaginal penetration alone. And so if you're a woman who believes you're supposed to be having vaginal orgasms, but you orgasm from your clitoris just fine, then you could take this test and you could score as having sexual dysfunction because you'll be so dissatisfied on all these metrics, even though you're totally normal. And so... And meanwhile, none of the questions evaluate how your clitoris is working or how, you know, your vulva is working. And there are multiple questions on lubrication. So, but none on clitoral sensation, which is crazy. So it's like these doctors. So to me, like if a patient comes in with sexual dysfunction, if they come in saying, hey, I can't have an orgasm, the very first thing you should do is figure out if their clitoris is sensitive or not. <laughs> Recently, I saw a urologist tweet a study that showed that women who had sexual dysfunction had less sensitive clitorises than normal. And this was like a pretty recent study. And she was making fun of it because it's just so ridiculous that this is like news. You know what I mean? Like, oh, guess what? It turns out if women have insensitive clitorises, they have they more likely have sexual dysfunction. Oh my God, why is this hard to figure out? This is like common sense. But basically, like it's just 
not something doctors have thought about. And actually what's crazy is in the top OBGYN surgery textbook until 2019, it advocated an intersex surgery procedure, basically a clitoroplasty surgery procedure that would reduce the size of the clitoris that involved cutting the dorsal nerves of the clitoris on purpose rather than trying to spare them because it's like simpler that way. <laughs> like they went over the technique where they cut it on purpose and then they went over the technique where they try to spare them. And then they said, you know, it might not be worth trying to spare them because a lack of clitoral sensation does not seem to affect the patient's later sexual behavior and sexual function seems satisfactory in women after procedures that sever the dorsal nerves of the clitoris. So that is functionally equivalent to female genital mutilation. And also in the text, they said in the past, they had amputated the clitoris, right? In girls born with congenital adrenal hyperplasia where their clitorises are enlarged. Originally, they would just amputate them. But in the sex book, they said, you know, this particular technique gives a better cosmetic result. But because they were severing the dorsal nerves, it wouldn't give a better functional result. <laughs> and they weren't concerned about that. And this was in the latest edition of Taylin's Operative Gynecology, which is considered the Bible of gynecologic surgery. So the crazy thing to me is that the equivalent of female genital mutilation involving the clitoris was advocated for in the top OBGYN surgery textbook. And it, nobody it spoke up about it. And so some people will say, well, you don't know that no OBGYN spoke up. And I was like, well, it didn't change until I spoke up. And I'm just a lay person. I have no credibility. So I can tell you that it's 10 times harder for me to get people to listen to me than for an OBGYN to. And this is something that I really underestimated because I used to just think facts are facts. You know, <laughs> like I don't need an MD to get people to pay attention to published research, do I? Well, it turns out it's way, way more difficult <laughs> if you don't have an MD. And it's really frustrating because sometimes like MDs say things that are completely untrue and they get taken as fact. Like journalists will publish physicians' testimony as fact in news articles when it's blatantly medically false, they don't actually check the research. They don't check the evidence. But doctors just have so much credibility that they can say things that aren't backed by evidence. And, and in my opinion, there's like a rampant informational quality problem in medical literature. Like I was saying, there's all these false claims about labia minora. They get published in major medical textbooks and journals as if they are facts when they are not supported by any evidence. It's just convenient for them to say those things, I think. Or like with the claim that large labia minora are caused by sexual activity and masturbation, that comes from the 19th century. It actually has racist origins because basically in the 19th century, African women were put on display in Europe and they observed that you know, the ones who came from regions where they practiced labia minora stretching had large labia minora. Like they were the quote unquote Hottentot women who had the enlarged labia minora. And these European doctors, I think primarily in the United Kingdom, were observing these women and trying to establish that white women were superior, right? Because they, they believed that 
black people were genetically inferior and less evolved than white people. And they were looking for evidence of that. And so they're like, oh, well, these black women have large labia minora and white women don't. And so this is a sign of being less evolved. And this, they also saw it as a sign of being more primitive and oversexed. And so then they make this association with like <coughs> being excessively sexually active, having excessive sexual desire, mania. I think also it's probably just associated with like external genitals are associated with maleness and maleness is associated with having sexual desire. And then meanwhile, females were not supposed to be sexual. And so visible external genitals kind of symbolizes like being more sexual in a way because I don't know. So I guess there are a few factors, but basically the attribution of large labia minora to sexual activity and masturbation is just conjectural. You know, it's made up and it was originally made up basically sort of in a slut shaming way and in a racist way. <laughs> like this one OBGYN, I think it was an, either an OBGYN or an anatomist. He illustrated four different vulvas and there was like a child's vulva and he at least acknowledged that the children had the smallest labia minora and then it was like a normal white woman's labia minora and she had slightly bigger labia minora and then it was like a nymphomaniac's white woman's labia minora (laughs) I think it was like white woman who like masturbates too much or is a nymphomaniac something like that and then on the end black woman's labia minora That is so interesting. I've never heard of this study or like this observation before. It's on my Instagram. It's from some book. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. This has been such an interesting conversation. And I think that so many of the listeners will appreciate learning your story, but learning more about what are labiaplasties, learning more about how labias are different and the kind of social backing behind labiaplasties. Yeah, I think it's really important to recognize that labia minora are stigmatized because of the taboo around female sexuality in general. Like that's where this most fundamentally comes from. And in my opinion, you know, labiaplasty in the West happens for the same fundamental cultural reasons as female genital mutilation. I mean, what's behind it is this idea that female genitals should be invisible and that they're unfeminine and embarrassing. Like, why are they considered unfeminine? Why is prominent female genitalia considered unfeminine? There's this idea that women shouldn't have prominent external genitals. We conceptualize female genitals as a vagina as a whole. And so anything external gets stigmatized and is taboo, but what's external is what we get the most pleasure out of, right? So we're defining women's genitals as what gives men pleasure and delivers babies. And we're stigmatizing the parts that give women pleasure. And that says a lot about our culture. And so I really think that's important to recognize, like when women think of, their external genitals as ugly. Like, I feel like what that's really about is sort of like shame around female sexuality. Yesterday, or no, on Saturday, Dr. Wednesday Martin gave a lecture on 
she gave a lecture for the clitoris summit and she was talking about how bonobos have external clitorises and the female bonobos will like, <laughs> they all like scissor each other. <laughs> it was sort of funny. I actually didn't get a chance to watch it all and I really want to go back and watch it. But basically I think that there are evolutionary reasons why women have like external pleasure organs and it's, there's all this, framing of sexuality around male pleasure that causes a denial of this and makes women think that, oh, they're supposed to orgasm from internal penetration alone and everything external is like extraneous or shameful and that's just terrible. It's just wrong. Yeah, it's absolutely not true. Well, I appreciate you adding that in. Where can the listeners find you at? So I am Mediclit on Twitter and I am Jessica underscore and underscore pin, P-I-N on Instagram. Beautiful. I'll be sure to add those into the show notes so that they can go follow you. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by Pure Romance by Jordan Jones, offering top bath and beauty products and relationship enhancement items. Check out the link in the bio to start shopping today. By shopping, you are supporting this podcast. Thank you for joining today and continuing to bring awareness to women's health. If you love the show, please subscribe so you never miss another episode and leave a review for others to see. If you want to see me on the daily, you can check out my bio for links to all my pages. Be sure to share this episode with your girlfriends. Thanks again and see you next episode.